Up until recently, Facebook and LinkedIn were really the only sites that had policies that required real names. And so having a third network come along and impose a policy like this on its users without really considering user desires and needs does set a dangerous precedent. When Google launched its social networking service, Google+, everybody wanted in. Thousands of plebes publicly humiliated themselves, begging the Digirati for an invite. In just 12 days, 5 million people signed up. But then, Google announced that if you wanted to use Google+, then you had to use your real name. Jillian York of the EFF cried foul, and she wrote a piece she called The Case for Pseudonyms. And she listed all the people this policy would negatively affect. Activists in countries like Syria, people who um, live in small communities who may or may not be out um, as gay or lesbian and want to, um, you know, feel safe to explore that identity online. You have um, transgendered people who may or may not have changed their names yet and are known by more than one different name, um, you know, and can't use those names on different networks. And then you've also got a bunch of other different circumstances. Um, there's one example of someone called Bug Girl. Um, she's an entomologist, but she works for a government agency and she's not allowed to use her real name on social networks. And so she uses a pseudonym so that she can, you know, have have whatever inane conversations or, or, you know, important conversations that she wants to have um, without breaking the rules of her job. Then there are also just people who are known by pseudonyms, um, you know, DJs or hackers, who might actually have more people who know them by their pseudonym than by their real name. And so what makes their real name so much more important than this other identity that they've been known by? Jillian's post went viral. It was even a hit on Google+. It got a hashtag. Nim Wars. Totally on. Now, Jillian wasn't calling for an all-out attack on Google+. She simply wanted to point out that when it comes to free speech, these kinds of policies have consequences people knowing that they're handing over their ID when they go online are certainly more likely to censor themselves um, in whatever they talk about, whether they're blogging or participating in forums or whatever they're doing. We need only look to South Korea for a good example. Um, South Korea actually has uh, government-mandated ID policies. Um, there are sites in South Korea where users are required to identify themselves with their government ID number or what, or what have you. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's an incredibly dangerous precedent. It has a chilling effect on free speech. Um, when you're required to sign up to something using your real name um, and identifying yourself uh, with that information, you you tend to self-censor. And so, um, you know, I live in the U.S. where I am fortunately free to say most things. But at the same time, there are politically um, controversial opinions that I might hold. And I may not feel safe saying those on a certain social network, knowing that my relatives or people who donate to the organization that I work for or whatever. Um, there are a lot of different cases where I just may not feel comfortable saying that. But if I I can go somewhere um, to some community online where people are talking about that specific issue and I can join in using a pseudonym, then I'm automatically going to feel a little bit safer um, talking about it. So a world in which we're all required to sign up to sites using our government ID and our real names um, would really sort of exclude those types of conversations from happening. And I think that that is really dangerous. Uh, there's no precedent like it offline. My name is Andy Carvin, and I'm senior strategist at NPR. It was not at all surprising to find Andy Carvin on Nimmore's front line. Because Andy Carvin's been ubiquitous these past few months, tweeting the revolutions of Arab Spring. 
it, it started by accident because uh, uh, in December I was already following people on Twitter in Tunisia, people that I had met over the years, and they started talking about protests, which surprised me because Tunisia isn't exactly known for its uh, uh, freedom of protest there. And so I, I started retweeting what they were saying, and in a matter of a few weeks, the next thing you know, the uh, president is fleeing for his life. And then things start ramping up in Egypt and then Bahrain and then Libya. Andy Carvin got the opportunity to publicly ask Google's Eric Schmidt about the company's real name policy. I was actually uh, at an event in Scotland where uh, the chairman of Google, uh, Eric Schmidt, was speaking and he talked specifically about Google Plus and their, their naming policy. Wait, so you like stood up and called him out? No, the way the way the event worked is it was a moderated Q and A where there was a um, there was a host on the stage with him who had his own set of questions, and then he took additional questions via Twitter. And so I, I had sent out a tweet asking uh, Schmidt to comment on uh, their names policy as it relates to uh, human rights activists who might fear for their lives if they use r- their real names. And uh, even before he answered that particular question, he talked about the general philosophy of of requiring real names and it's because he described Google Plus primarily as an identity service and he said one of the reasons why it took so long for uh, for Google to get into the social media game is they wanted to nail this idea of identity beforehand because they think the money is on knowing actually who people are. One of the things that Eric Schmidt said when he was on stage in Edinburgh was that people don't have to use Google Plus. If they don't like the real names policy, they don't have to use it. Both Andy Carvin and Jillian York take issue with this idea. Carvin says we only need look at the events of Arab Spring for evidence as to why social media is no longer something optional. Of course, anything's optional online, but for example, if you decide to opt out of using social media, whether it's Google Plus or Facebook or what have you, you are essentially um, creating a chilling effect for your own voice. You will not be able to participate in conversations that are lo- local or global that potentially can reach, reach a wider audience. And so, of course, it's it's a person's choice whether or not they, they want to get involved with something like that. But for people who are really focused on trying to get the word out, uh, social media is, is something that's become a very important part of their toolkit. And so not using it uh, isn't really an option for them anymore. If it's an identity service, then Google or someone is serving up my identity to someone else. Another thing Eric Schmidt said in Edinburgh was that real names were important to Google because with them, they can, you know, build people. He even went as far as to say the internet works better that way. And while I'm glad that people like Andy Carvin and Jillian York are out there raising awareness about the case for pseudonyms when it comes to privacy and free speech, I wanted to find someone who could also speak to the business side of the story, because for me, it's just as insidious. But I could only find one person who directly addressed this, a woman named Meg Worley. She has a blog called Zoom. X-O-O-M. And on the blog, I write about authorship, particularly medieval authorship. And then there's a good dose of general absurdity. 
In her post, Say No to the Meat Wallet, Meg Worley points out that Eric Schmidt's statement should alarm us because it suggests that companies like Google, now having made millions on our clicks and page views, is ready to cash in on our actual identities as well. We are sources of income. Our identities are sources of income for Google. And that I find very interesting because there's been quite a bit talked about or quite a bit spoken about advertising and using our attention as as a commodity, but identity adds something new to it. So we become meat wallets for Google. Meg Worley firmly rejects Eric Schmidt's assertion that real names make the internet work better. The internet really is an agent of change, and it's opening up all kinds of new possibilities for us. But if that's true, we have to also kind of re-envision and recreate what identity means to us. The whole Nim Wars thing went down in August. So in a way, it was like Shark Week for internet nerds. But the audience didn't tune in. Nim Wars never became a story. Someone named Scud started a website called My Name Is Me to document people and their pseudonyms, but it was kind of a dud. But Meg Worley says, I've got it all wrong. She thinks Nim Wars was actually won by the good guys. It's looking like the adoption of Google Plus has slowed down quite a bit, and there are far fewer posts on Google Plus now than there were in the first few weeks. And I think Nim Wars has a big part to play in that. In the 19th century, um, pseudonymity reached its peak. It was common for all kinds of reasons, for women wanting to write as men, for people wanting to write in different genres, um, wanting to protect their reputations, um, you know, keeping in mind there was no internet, people were isolated, it was harder to get published, um, there was a lot of, you know, town gossip nonetheless, people had to kind of be careful. There were lots of writers who were doing this. In her book, Nam de Plume, A Secret History of Pseudonyms, writer Carmela Chiraru profiles 16 authors and their pseudonyms. And while her timeline crosses 1950, in a few instances, most of her subjects, like the Bronte sisters, Samuel Clemens, and Charles Dodgson, wrote in the 19th century. Chiraru says she's actually not interested in the way modern writers use pseudonyms. In contemporary cases, I think writers... It, for pseudonymous writers, it's much more often a marketing ploy, and it's really just kind of brand extension and not saturating the market. So it's like, oh, this is a book by Richard Bachman, um, but it's also it's also by Stephen King, so I kind of know what I'm getting. Like, I'm getting a good thing here. You know, I'm getting a celebrity brand. Some of the authors in Chiraru's book have pseudonyms that are more famous than their creators, like Eric Blair's George Orwell. And some of the authors you'll only know by their pseudonyms. Sylvia Plath's real name was Victoria Lucas. But all of the pseudonyms in Nom de Plume get their counterparts into trouble. But the French writer Romain Gary, I think, had it the worst. First of all, Gary wasn't even his real name. His mother had him change it. Gary was an adopted name because his mother was a real Francophile and wanted him to become a great writer in France. And he did. He became France's best-selling writer. He wrote the best-selling novel of the 20th century in France, which is hard to believe because no one seems to know him over here. Gary won the prestigious French literary award, the Prix Goncourt, in 1956 for his book Le Racine du Ciel. 
but the fame and fortune didn't last. By 1970, Gary felt the critics had written him off. And so he became Emil Ajar, um, who is an Algerian immigrant and former abortion doctor. Uh, there's some other very specific details to, to Ajar. And um, lo and behold, Emil Ajar became a popular, successful, best-selling author and won the Prix Goncourt. This was a problem, though, because a French writer is only allowed to win the Prix Goncourt. Once. He tried to decline the prize, and, you know, the jury said, this is not for the author to decide, you know, we will decide, we are the jury, you know, so it's like typically um, French, you know, and so he, they just basically said, you know, bugger off, this is our, this is not even your decision to make. So, so he was really stuck with himself and having been too good a writer, and the story really took on a life of its own. The fake Emile Ajar had suddenly become a real star. One woman said she had slept with a jar and, you know, he was fantastic in bed. Um, critics saying, oh, you know, Gary is, is finished. He's nothing. A jar is the best new writer to, you know, he's the best writer to watch. And, and or, you know, people accusing um, uh, a jar of plagiarizing Gary. I mean, it was, there were all these really funny things. And the, the public was really clamoring for a jar to make himself known. So Gary very very um, cleverly improvised and had a distant cousin embody a jar. And this guy was kind of scruffy and bohemian, so he would make public appearances. And then it was, you know, kind of cringe-inducing. One, he got talked into um, spending a weekend with Gary's publisher and posing as a jar. And so he had to spend the entire weekend with this woman and sign books and tell stories. And that was kind of awkward for him, but he pulled it off. But after a few close calls, Gary threw his cousin under the bus. He wrote a book called Pseudo that made it look like the whole Ajar affair had been masterminded by Gary's masturbation-obsessed, mentally ill cousin. The whole thing blew up when the now horrified cousin refused to play along. And when the truth came out, the French literary establishment was furious. They never forgave him. It sounds strange, but I don't think he was thinking of his audience when he did it. It sounds naive, but I think he was so caught up in and what he was doing, I mean, I think, yes, he wanted to be read differently and read in a new way, but I think it was also kind of a private thing that he wanted to accomplish. He wanted to see what he could pull off as, as a writer. Um, and I don't think he was prepared for kind of the scope of of how, how the whole story blew up. I don't think anyone could have been. And that story has a, has a very sad ending because, you know, he ends up killing himself in his Paris apartment. Um, and, and to me, that is an instance of what, what started off as a prank became something really dark and um, just kind of profound, you know, again, tying into issues of creativity and mental illness and um, figuring out how to separate the self who one is from the self who writes. You know, it gets confusing. Many of the writers in Chiraru's book struggle at some point with this problem of separating the self who writes from the self who is. But the science fiction writer Alice Sheldon actually found it impossible to write, at least the way she wanted to, without her pseudonym, James Tiptree Jr., a pin name she picked up one afternoon while out shopping with her husband. She was at the supermarket one day, and they were trying to figure out a pen name for her science fiction and picked up a jar of jam and just, you know, kind of off the cuff said, Tiptree, James Tiptree. And the other one said, Junior. <laughs> you know, so James Tiptree Jr. was born. When Alice Sheldon began writing science fiction as James Tiptree Jr., 
The scene and the subculture was very, very male, but she totally fooled everyone. She passed as this swaggering, confident male science fiction writer for a decade, and um, not to gender stereotype, but, you know, her writing, if you read James Tiptree's writing, it's very male. It just sounds like a man. I think it would be hard to guess that that was written by a woman, which is interesting because it was. Um, she fooled everyone, but she definitely had a different voice when she was Tiptree. And um, yeah, it just became hugely popular, uh, came very close to being outed a couple of times. She had a few scary near misses. Um, and as time went on, though, she started to resent Tiptree for getting all the fame. And she talked about wanting to shoot him and drown him in a river. You or drown him in the Caribbean. I mean, um, I think she kind of started to hate him, you know, for having all the glory where she, a woman, had none, you know, as herself. She had nothing, basically. And um, she tried writing as Alice Sheldon, and this will sound funny, but she, she, her writing wasn't very good, and she also couldn't really write without him. Eventually, Sheldon was found out. She got careless in some of her letters, and a fan pieced the mystery together. She was unmasked. The science fiction community was outraged, and many of her fellow writers, friends, stopped talking to her. When that story came out fully and all the details were exposed, um, she was inconsolable. You know, she just couldn't recover, and I think she didn't know who she was. Was she still him? Was she a woman again? It was very disorienting and very tragic. I asked Carmela Chararu to tell me what it was that all the writers she profiled in her book had in common. She said it was courage. I came away from, you know, just tons and tons and tons of research, just totally blown away and inspired by what they had done to write. You know, they were incredibly brave. Um, now we've gone, I think, from courage to cowardice <laughs> because instead of hiding so that you can function creatively, so that you can have your privacy and your quietness to write, um, people use uh, fake names, that's a better way to put it, fake names instead of, you know, nom de plume, to hide who they are so that they can savage other people online. That happens a lot. Um, do people have the right to do that? Sure, it's, you know, freedom. You can have 50 different identities on the web. But I just see that as cowardice. I mean, how dare these people, you know, write nasty things, you know, responses to op-ed articles or whatever online and not say who they are, you know, because the writer had to. The writer wrote the piece with a byline. And, you know, I mean, I, I spoke with... Um, a reporter from the Wall Street Journal once, and she said, you know, her her work reaches countless millions of people all over the world, and she stopped reading the online comments because they were brutal, and they started, they, people would say she was fat, and I mean, no one, you know, of course no one knows what she looks like, but people started making these really nasty personal attacks on her, and she said, and they're all anonymous, and it makes me crazy. So I think that courage is notably lacking in today's culture. I mean, it's so easy to have a pen name now online. It's nothing. Perhaps Charles Dodgson had the best idea on how to put a pseudonym to use. As Lewis Carroll, he was the most famous writer in England. Everyone loved his Alice in Wonderland books, even the Queen. But the mathematician had a rule. Not only would Charles Dodgson never admit to being Lewis Carroll publicly, he would refuse to even discuss the writer or his works. In this way, his pseudonym was like a shield protecting him from the double-edged sword of fame and celebrity. 
But then, one day, Dodgson got a fan letter from the Queen herself. She wanted him to send her more of his work. Charles Dodgson was never one to disrespect the Queen, um, who, you know, loved Lewis Carroll's work, uh, Alice in Wonderland, and wanted, wanted his books. Uh, but Charles Dodgson could not <laughs> uh, comply with the Queen's request for Lewis Carroll's work because he was, he was you know, adamant that he, he wouldn't address anyone asking for Lewis Carroll. So he sent her some, some very arcane mathematical texts. This is what he sent her a book called Condensation of Determinants being a new and brief method for computing their arithmetic values. You know, I'm sure she just must have been utterly baffled, but this was his way of kind of meeting the queen halfway. Um, And, you know, if someone would ever approach him on the street, he just would kind of, you know, shudder and run off. It wasn't fake or put on or, you know, trying to be modest. It was just genuine. I mean, it just freaked him out to be famous. Today, in our brand me era, Charles Dodgson's ideas about fame and celebrity and pseudonyms are no longer in style. As Carmela Chararu says, most contemporary pseudonyms are created for marketing purposes. Today's authors are gung-ho to put their real name everywhere, and there's an entire industry dedicated to helping them register their name on every website or app that comes down the pike. On Twitter, though, at least for now, anyone can sign up using a famous person's details. Over the past year, in fact, there's been an explosion of these fake Twitter pseudonyms. The best one, though, the best effing one of them all, hands down, is Mayor Emanuel. Slightly different reception than I got at my bar mitzvah, but I appreciate it. On October 1, 2010, Rahm Emanuel left his job as the White House's chief of staff so he could run for mayor of Chicago. It's the greatest city in the greatest country in the world. When he announced his departure, his colleagues gave him a special going-away present, a dead fish wrapped in newspaper. Even greater. I want to thank my colleagues for your patience. I'm, I'm sure you've learned some words that you've never heard before, and in any... And an assortment of combination of words. This godfather-like going-away gift was fitting for a man with a reputation as a foul-mouthed hard-ass, and especially for a politician about to enter into the notoriously insular, family-run mayorship in Chicago. So, as the media machine geared up for the real Rahm Emanuel's run, Chicagoan Dan Sinker created a Twitter account for the politician. He named it at Mayor Emanuel. So the first night was kind of him tweeting expletives at Politico and other places as they would go live with the story, basically telling them to shut the fuck up. Rahm Emanuel was not the first politician or celebrity or public figure to be satirized with a fake Twitter account. But Sinker felt there was something about the real Rahm Emanuel's style and public image that was just begging for it. It just seemed like there was something there that is was worth kind of making fun with. Once Rahm Emanuel and at Mayor Emanuel were officially in the race, Sinker started tweeting daily, on his commute, during his lunch breaks, and on his way home from work. At the beginning, the narrative was very, very loose, right? I mean, it was really just kind of like, God damn this day. And on the return home, it was about how glad he was that work was over. And, uh, you know, he was tweeting kind of universal feelings about work. Uh, it just happened that uh, 
that his work was the, the work of running for office. One typical at Mayor Emanuel tweet read, Dear Coffee, you are the motherfucking greatest of all of mankind's inventions. Then that kind of got boring. And at Mayor Emanuel's story started to get a little weird. I began to introduce characters that didn't exist, like an intern. And a talking duck named David Quaxelrod. You know, he starts complaining because David Axelrod's mustache had taken a week off, right? As I would kind of go off on these kind of more surrealistic tangents, those started getting longer and more ambitious. And then as it progressed into, you know, into the latter half of the campaign, I started to really just think about the form as a whole, you know, and this idea that you have this pseudonym living in the same world as the real thing. And I began to sort of play with that. In fact, these are two entities that aren't supposed to exist together, and but they do, and that only one can actually kind of emerge from, you know, a, a great reckoning event like, like an election. So you get this very odd interplay between fiction and nonfiction. Even though Rahm Emanuel went to the same Chicago area high school as me, and even though his strong personality wasn't out of place for the mythology of the city, he wasn't exactly known as a local. At one point in the campaign, Rahm Emanuel was kicked off the ballot for five days because he didn't meet the residency requirements to run. And then he was back on the ballot. One of the first people to be able to tweet that out was Mayor Emanuel. Right? Was I, I was following one very good live tweeter, uh, tweeting account who was in Springfield who were going to have that, and I had them on text alert. So the minute that they tweeted, I was going to get it. I already had the thing written, so all I had to do was hit send. What Sinker sent was, motherfucking street legal, bitches. You know, it was very funny because so many people from that tweet at replied saying, is it a bad thing that I'm getting my breaking news now from a fake account? People were like, well, he must be an insider because he knew that he was back on the ballot before anyone. This seemingly insider knowledge got people wondering, who was the actual person behind at Mayor Emanuel? This thing got so much bigger. And the New York Times did a story about it. The Chicago Tribune did a story about it. Politico seemed to have like an entire bureau dedicated to the account. Um, I mean, it was, it became a very big thing. And of course, one of the big things was who's writing this, right? Every single article had to have all of this speculation over who was writing the account. And, you know, you get that enough and you start to feel very paranoid because everyone's looking for you, right? And they think they're looking for someone, but you know they're looking for you. That began to kind of eat away at me. As the pressure increased, as, as more and more media outlets picked up on it, um, that just started to get me crazy, especially because so much of it was being written out in the open on a train, right? I mean, it's like suddenly I would be, you know, choosing my seats based on who it seemed like wouldn't know about the account and wouldn't be looking over my shoulder as I was furiously tweeting away and, and things like that. So by the end, you know, a week before the election, Emmanuel goes on the radio and says he wants to give money to the charity that author's choice if they'll reveal themselves within... 10, 15 seconds of that, the internet was filled with Rahm Emanuel puts bounty on vulgar Twitterer's head. 
And after that radio speech, Sinker was fielding more requests from the media than ever. One of them was this guy, Alexis Madrigal, who writes for The Atlantic. And he wrote, and then I think he wrote again, and was like, you at least owe me the dignity to tell me to fuck off. And, and that actually kind of piqued my curiosity. Sinker liked Madrigal's response, so he started taunting him from his anonymous at Emanuel email account. At one point, I was kind of playing with him with the idea that the New York Times was offering me all of this stuff, right? And I think I said, like, you know, he pitched me something, and I was like, fuck it, I'm going to the New York Times. You know, they said they'll give me a pony. And he wrote back, and he was like, great, now I'm going to have to kill everyone at the New York Times and every pony. And I was like, that's awesome! Eventually, Sinker decided to reveal his true identity to Madrigal. Just wrote this email and was like, you know what, all right, here, this is who I am. And I think, I think all it said at the end was like, please don't fuck me on this. And within a few hours, Sinker had an email waiting in his personal inbox. The subject line read, Punk Fucking Planet. Punk Planet was the zine about punk politics and culture that Sinker had published for 13 years. And it turns out he had read it as a younger person living in I think, Portland or something like that and knew all about kind of zine culture and the underground culture that that magazine grew up in. And we did a phone interview on that Monday then and in the morning and the Atlantic went live with the story on their website at about 1.15 in the afternoon central time. And uh, by three there were news people on my front lawn. <laughs> which was insane. Sinker planned to end at Mayor Emanuel when the mayoral race ended, and he did. This was one of the last of 1,995 tweets in the at Mayor Emanuel story, a scene where Mayor Daly inducts at Mayor Emanuel into Chicago mayorhood. Daly says, There's not just one Chicago, there's not just one you, it's infinite, and we keep the portal and he gestures for me to fucking look in. And then, at Mayor Emanuel disappears into this parallel dimension, into a world filled with Chicago mayors. I imagine he's driving around in David Axelrod's stolen Civic up there, drinking as much motherfucking coffee as he wants. The real Rahm Emanuel is now the mayor of Chicago. The whole Twitter stream is now collected in a book called The Effing Epic Twitter Quest of Mayor Emanuel, complete with annotations that put the tweets in context with events from the election, bringing Rahm Emanuel's mayoral race and Sinker's at Mayor Emanuel stories together. As a Chicagoan living on the East Coast, I followed the election through my computer monitor and my iPhone. In order to win the election, the real Rahm Emanuel had to sell himself to the Chicago people as a worthwhile successor to the Daily regime. And in a strange way, the fake Twitter account helped him do that. Fake Twitter accounts, it turns out, aren't 100% fake. It's very interesting to see now that this is a part of the world now. Right? If you're entering the world through a digital filter, you're getting this mashed up culture of truth and fiction and of fact and joke. And it's actually, to me, it's very liberating. And I think that there is a lot of things that people realize were possible through Mayor Manuel that they didn't realize or didn't think about before. So as you may realize by now, one of the main reasons we find pseudonyms so compelling, so fascinating, 
is because they are all, at heart, little detective mysteries. And we just can't help but want to know who's behind the pen name or who's behind the fake Twitter account. In some cases, all it takes to find out are a few clicks on the internet. That's what artist Chris Collins found out when he set out to discover the owner of the internet handle, Ty Pilot. It was a man named Ron Ty, and when Chris Collins found him on Facebook, he wrote him a letter. Dear Mr. Ron Ty, this is going to be a strange email, both for me and you. I have no idea how you'll respond to me writing you out of the blue like this. So let me start off by assuring you that I'm not a creep, a crazy person, or an internet troll. I've been following your work for a long time. A few years ago, while I was looking around the job section of Craigslist, I found an ad describing a work-from-home job. Normally, I disregard a post like this, as these things are usually flagged for spam as soon as they are posted. But for some reason, I clicked. I've seen many posts like this before. It usually says, in vague and optimistic terms, that there are mountains of wealth hiding just beyond the surface of your computer screen. And all it takes to capture your tiny piece is a little bit of hard work and a high-speed internet connection. Usually it offers some sort of challenge to its audience, like, do you have what it takes? If so, click here. These posts feel stilted, detached, and artificial. A collection of buzzwords loosely constructed into a sentence, as if a computer was talking to another computer through the vast vacuum of space. I don't remember what the actual body of the post says, and an archive of it is probably lost forever in the internet ether. What I do remember is the promotional image that followed. Whereas all the other make-money-from-home posts I'd ever seen had been mechanical, steeped in cliché, and lacking any sort of heart or sincerity, this was the opposite. It was one of the most unique pieces of graphic design I'd ever seen. The image title was hope40.jpg. It looks like it's two businessmen standing in, in sort of a, a park with a globe. And then on top of, like superimposed on top of that, it looks like it's the uh, Internet Explorer logo. And they're both holding these cardboard balloons. And one of them says happy, and one of them says successful. And it says click here why, uh, with a question mark and three exclamation points. And then it, it's signed by uh, Luzi of TiePilot.com. By tracing the image URL, I was directed to a folder that contained over 40 different images, all completely different, all with hope in the title, all promoting TiePilot.com, and they were all signed by a mysterious person named Luzi. This is a pretty good one. It's a Hope 26. It's a man that's holding up a globe, but the globe is covered in money. And the background of this image is clouds, and there's a text superimposed on everything that says, you can have everything you want in life if you will just help enough other people what they want. Start your 2008 be a successful year. Click here now. Each image I found was more thrilling than the previous one. They exploded with strange color choices. A graphic designer would look at these compositions and call them horrendous. I found them bizarre, perplexing, and quite beautiful. I once had a friend who, as an adult, started playing piano. He never had any formal training, didn't know how to read music, and knew nothing about music theory. In spite of this, 
and I'd argue precisely because of this, the compositions he created were some of the most beautiful I'd ever heard. This was not because some sort of innate ability, some sort of mythical muse or genius built into his DNA. It was because he had enthusiasm and wasn't weighed down by the tethers of convention. He didn't know how things were supposed to be done, so he found his own way. This is what I saw in Luzi's work. I can sense the enthusiasm, the belief in the product, and thus a belief in the power of the internet. Luzi, like my friend the pianist, was not held back by rules and convention, and was free to just create. The results were sincere and poetic. One of the images said, everybody's wanted, everybody's needed, everybody's dreamed. Click here to find out how. The strange thing though, is when I did click to find out how, and was redirected to typepilot.com, there was nothing there. Now, this could have been the end of the story. The internet is forever growing and changing. New connections are made, and old connections die. Domain names expire every day. What's the big deal? But for whatever reason, Lucy's images stuck with me. I saved a copy of them to my computer, out of fear that they'd soon be deleted. Sometimes I'd forget about them, but I'd always return. I actually became quite protective of these images. I didn't share them with anyone. I feared they would laugh at the spelling, the grammar, the unprofessional quality, and not see them as I did. I felt such an affinity towards these strange and beautiful pictures, and the more I investigated them, the more questions I had. Who is Lucy? What was TyPilot.com? I needed to dig deeper. I was able to locate a cached version of TyPilot.com at archive.org's Wayback Machine. This revealed the skeleton of a site scattered with dead links and images. The site promoted Global Domains International. Welcome to Global Domains International. Your meeting is in the executive conference room. You're right on time. My name is Christy. And I'm Michael. We're here to help you get what you want, possibly more than you ever dreamed of. Michael is so right. We're about to show you something that could change your life on many levels and truly make you the master of your own domain. Let me show you what I mean with a quick presentation. Oh, feel free to go to our website at any time after this presentation to get more detailed information. But when I tried to search for more information about this company, I found it very hard to get a straight answer. As far as I can tell, this company purchased exclusive rights from the Western Samoan government to distribute the country's domain extension, WS. It seemed to operate as some sort of pyramid scheme, where you purchase a .ws domain that encourages others to purchase a .ws domain, and so on and so forth, theoretically earning you residual income. Okay, so this one is Hope 44, and it has a woman on the right side, and it's, it was clearly a very small image that was expanded uh, because it's all pixelated and compressed. The woman is holding a big wad of money, and right next to her is, is a computer. And in, some, in a really sort of funky font, it says, Try, come, and join us for making online income. Click here now. TyPilot.com was no longer active, but additional research led me to a YouTube account with the same username. The name listed on the account was Ron Ty. It was there I found your love letters to Lucy. I found out that you met online, 
and fell in love. You live in the States, she in Vietnam. You exchanged photos and eventually went to visit. You fell deeper in love. You made plans for her to move to the States with you, but things were taking longer than expected. In one video, you promise, next Christmas we'll be together, and it will be amazing. Hey, sweetheart. Just want to wish you a Merry Christmas. Uh, this is a video I just put together. It's a video card. I hope you like it. Uh, next time you come here, it's going to be incredible, baby. Our next Christmas will be incredible. So Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, I love you so much, and I wish you were here for this Christmas, but next year you'll be here. Bye now, honey. Love you. These videos have since been deleted, but comments like, I hope you will fix your problems soon. Your kids deserve to have a mom and dad. Those remain. From these details, I began constructing this heartbreaking story in my head. One of love, the promise of wealth, and of bottoming out, coming up short. It goes like this. Lucy and Ron met online. Despite a significant age difference and thousands of miles between them, they fell fast and deeply in love. They made plans to be together, a plan to bring Lucy from Vietnam to California. They decided to go into business together. The internet seemed like such a magical place to them. After all, through it they'd accomplished the impossible and found each other. Because of this belief, they were seduced by the promises of GDI. Ron would handle the numbers and the technical aspects, and Lucy would create the graphics. They set up shop at typepilot.com and began attempting to sell .ws domain names. The images Lucy created, the Hope JPEGs, not only served as promotion for their business, but as love letters to Ron, as hopes and prayers for the future. A future that did not come. After pouring a significant amount of time and money into it, Ron and Lucy declared defeat, and TiePilot.com was abandoned and left to expire. I guess the whole reason why I'm writing you all of this is to ask you how the story ends. I've spent years constructing my own story of Ron and Lucy and TiePilot.com and GDI and Western Samoa, yet I've neglected to contact you directly about it. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe I was just concerned I'd freak you out. Also, I'm writing to tell you that I've purchased TiePilot.com and I'm offering it to you as a gift. I'll put all of Lucy's Hope JPEGs up there, but I'll give it to you and you can do whatever you want with it. Sincerely, your internet admirer, Chris Collins.
couple of weeks ago, I got flown down to Atlanta to attend a meeting. I guess, I guess you would just call it a focus group. Why would you want anything to do with a focus group? Well, I, I thought exactly the same thing. I, you know, I was like, this isn't something that I'm interested in doing until they told me that all of the participants uh, had to have top secret security clearances. And that's why they contacted me. So, you know, I said, okay. What could you possibly be doing at a top secret focus group? Rebranding. Rebranding is actually kind of an interesting thing. Corporations or entities can rebrand for a number of reasons. Perhaps they're trying to change their image to reach more people or uh, become important in a new market, maybe to expand. Sometimes it's because they're maybe having difficulties in the press or their public relations, and so it's a good idea to change their image to something that is not associated with the problems that they've been Oh my having. God, you, you, you're, you're doing a News Corp focus group. <laughs> it's funny that you say that because that's exactly what I was thinking. And as we're, you know, this is right before the session, we're getting coffee and, and, and donuts and stuff. And I kind of nudge this guy next to me and I say, we're here for Rupert Murdoch, aren't we? And the guy starts laughing and he says, no, 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 no. Actually, I was on that rebranding effort a week ago. Really? And then this guy tells me this insane story. So you know about the hacking scandal and all that stuff, right? Yes, crisis mode. Exactly. So the company is falling apart. They're in like DEFCON 1. And they decided the way that they would fix the problem was to rebrand and change the name. And how does that work? Well, it's pretty straightforward. They gather a bunch of people. In this case, they flew them all to Dubai. And they met at the top of this skyscraper in a huge conference room. And they sat down and pitched ideas and discussed how to rebrand and rename the company. And this guy that I'm talking to was one of the guys that was there. But this guy says they have a major problem. Rupert Murdoch was was there. So this guy's telling me, you know, they're they're trying to come up with just different ideas and 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 Murdoch is just, you know, he's a, he, he's a legendary control freak and a jerk and he's just shooting down every idea this undermines the whole concept of a focus group you know a, a group like that is supposed to be you know it's brainstorming and you can't do brainstorming if someone is just saying no 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 that's crap you know what i mean so everybody finally stops saying anything and murdoch says here's what it's gonna be so he's got a pad of paper and he pulls out a pencil and he does this drawing and he turns it around so that everybody can see it. And it looks like some third grader has drawn a pirate ship. A pirate ship. According to this guy, that's what went down in Dubai. So if this is not a focus group for News Corps, what is it, like a, a secret military industrial contractor? No, but that's a really good guess. And also interesting that you say that because another guy that was there that I met had just participated in the same kind of focus group or rebranding effort for Blackwater. 
Yeah, but see, I don't understand why we call this rebranding. I mean, it's more, it seems more like whitewashing. I mean, it's like, it's the same company, it's the same people, and then they just change the logo and change the name, and then supposedly it's all different? Well, it's it's rebranding in that, I mean, you're trying to, to project a different image. And in this case, you you're going from something kind of concrete to something very abstract. They were Blackwater, which sort of had some meaning because the company was founded by a Navy SEAL. And the Blackwater is this big swamp that's around Norfolk, Virginia, where the company originally started. That's where a lot of the SEALs are based. So it kind of had this meaning. And now they just go with Z. It's spelled X-E, by the way. So people don't even really know how to pronounce it. So the... There's kind of no there there, which is something that a secretive organization wants, you know, so they probably kind of screwed up in the first place, if you want to think of it that way, by naming it Blackwater. And Z is much better name in, in, in this sense for an organization that just kind of wants to operate in the shadows and no one really knows what the hell's going on. Yeah, but by changing the name to something abstract, they're also trying to make people forget the very concrete bad things that they did when they used to be called Blackwater. Duh. It's called rebranding. So if it's not Rupert Murdoch or a military contractor that's brought you to Atlanta, who is it then? See if you can guess. After the coffee and donuts is over, a woman comes out, business suit. She leads us into the conference room. And she's got this giant screen behind her. And she says, okay, I'm going to show you some images. And I want to get your first impression associated with the image. Okay? So the first one she puts up is this bald eagle flying. So the Blackwater guy says, freedom. And I say, endangered species. And someone in the room shouted out, messenger of God. And then News Corp guy says, hair plugs. The second thing she puts up is an aircraft carrier. Immediately, Blackwater guy says, freedom. I say, expensive. Somebody shouts out, Captain Crunch. And News Corp guy says, party boat. The next thing she puts up is a picture of a field of grain with a tractor driving in it. And Blackwater guy immediately says, freedom. And I say, farm subsidies. Someone says, heartland. And the News Corp guy says, wonder bread. Are you trying to tell me that you have been selected to participate in a focus group for the rebranding of America? You got it. This episode of Too Much Information is called Pseudonyms. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen and Laura Mayer. It featured Jillian York, Andy Carvin, Meg Worley, Carmela Chiraru, Dan Sinker, Chris Collins, and TMI's special correspondent, Chris. 
special thanks to Eric Klein, Nick Vanderkolk, and Sylvie Kovnak. There's tons more information, including images and links. You have to check out the letter Chris Collins sent to Ron Ty. You can see that and more on the TMI show page at tmi.wfmu.org. Thank you.